For May 14th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 515. Tweet first, tweet hard, no mercy. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinker is why... Well, Mark, what would you say we're like? We're not like anything, Matt. We are your smart, funny friends on the internet. Yeah, no, we're not, e- we're not even like them. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're a metaphor, not a simile, for your <laughs> smart, funny friends on the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together. And, and I'm uh, honored today to be hosted in the magnificent abode of, uh, of our overthinker with the, the, the rich chocolatey baritone. It is our very own guitar god, our very own uh, Terminator fan uh, boy, Man, not a fan boy. He is a fan <laughs> man. man. It's Mr. Markley. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. I'm glad to have you here in my podcasting cave, my control command center. And we also have. I know there's like a there's a gaming PC sitting here. I haven't I haven't seen a gaming PC in in a while. And um and we also we are honored. We are pleased. We are thrilled to have with us today on this podcast, uh, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, I'm on a gaming PC every episode, oh. and you've never noticed. <laughs> it's uh, but it's your lightning fast reflexes. It's the refresh rate of your monitor or something. <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, are you liquid yes. cooled, Pete? Well, I've got about 150 hot takes per minute. So. <laughs> liquid cooled if you count LaCroix, am I right? <laughs> LaCroix made by the same company that makes Fago. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. Really? It's all about branding. The, the, the favorite choice of Juggalos? Insane oh, yes. clown posse fans of jugglers yeah. and juggalettes everywhere. Exactly. That is a fun. That is a fun fact. <laughs> yep. Well, the the reason I'm in I'm in New York. I, we might sound a little different. We're sharing a microphone, and you know it's a different time of day, so our energy is all loopy and stuff. Uh, the reason is that be uh, overthinking it hosted its annual Eurovision viewing party. Uh, here in New York City at the Liberty in Herald Square uh, yesterday. The, uh, well, it's yesterday as we record this, on, on Saturday the 12th of May. And uh, boy, oh boy, it was a party. Uh, Mark was there. Mark, uh, what did you think? Uh, it was a great time. Uh, we packed the venue. I think we might be even like, what, 50% or double what we had last year. Uh, overflow capacity. This is even. what the venue told us. It said... It said uh, I, I asked them for an estimate of our attendance, and they said, well, put one attendee on the first square of a chessboard, <laughs> and then double that, put two attendees on the second square of a chessboard, and uh, and then um, Thanos had to snap his finger. Oh, no, no spoilers. No spoilers on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was packed. They, they tell us we've been doubling every two years. I felt like we were at capacity last year, but, but if anything, it felt fuller. It felt like it felt more packed, and we, uh, we took reservations at the venue for the first time this year, which was an interesting development because we were actually sold out like or at least you know probably what 60 70 percent sold with all the reservations three weeks ago um and and so it was fun uh it, it was great to to meet people now now i see this is an interesting thing i feel like overthinking it has become two related but distinct businesses <laughs> right one is a uh, is a content website um 
that publishes articles, podcasts, you know, uh, the stuff that you're familiar with if you're a listener to this show. The other is as America's premier Eurovision fan site. (laughs) And the audiences for those things don't overlap at all. So I got a, I actually asked as I was emceeing and kind of uh, riling, riling up the the crowd who actually didn't need that much riling up. Everyone was, was pretty excited. Um, who watched our videos. And I guess there were, there were some cheers. There was a kind of mild uh, general approbation. A titter Wait, from the crowd. Yeah. Is, is approbation good or bad, Pete? I forget. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the, which, whichever one is good. Uh, it is good. Approbation is good. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was there was mild approbation um, and a, a kind of smattering of applause. Uh, but then then uh, I I asked uh, who uh, I, I did by round of applause who wanted uh, Cyprus to win or who wanted Israel to win. And my goodness, they blew the roof off of the place uh, <laughs> for the two for the two incredible divas uh, fronting the delegations from Cyprus and from from Israel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about that actually. Uh, so Israel won. The competition. Oh, spoiler alert! <laughs> it's, it's it's only front page news in uh, every country in the world except the United States, apparently. Yeah, well, every country in the European Broadcasting Union. Just in case, I I think we might even need to take a further step back. Is not everyone may know what Eurovision is. So here's what Eurovision is. Imagine that every imagine that American Idol worked like this. That every state had a state idol. Competition: California Idol, uh, uh, Nebraska Idol, right? Delaware Idol. Um, I don't know who's. What's a funny state that could have an idol uh, competition? Alabama Idol. I mean, you set me right up for that. So I'll say <laughs> Alabama Idol. Uh, Pete, did you have one? Oh yeah, North Dakota Idol versus South. Maybe you just have Dakota Idol, and they would unify, and there'd be like special rules for the Dakotas. And the uh, they all all these people the North Dakota Idol the Alabama Idol and the Delaware Idol were all sent to a giant super competition somewhere in America in in whatever state won last year and of the fifty entrants a winner was crowned uh, that was the American Idol of the the fifty songs that were entered into. The competition with their 50 singers performing them in a live telecast. Actually, not 50 because there's eliminations. 50 songs in one show would be unworkable. So uh, the European Broadcasting Union does does that as well um, with uh, European countries and some non-European countries that happen to be a part of that TV broadcast organization company sort of thing. Uh, each sending a champion to uh, each electing a champion in a or or selecting, I should say, because it's not always a democratic <laughs> process, especially given the kind of the global turn towards authoritarian regimes that has not spared many of the countries in the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, they select an entrant and and enter it in the uh, in the Eurovision Song Contest, and the winner hosts next year's competition, which, like the Olympics, is almost always economically a losing proposition for uh, for the host country, but is fabulous. Is so, it though, do you need to like? Uh, construct a massive natatorium for the swimming eurovision events i don't think so you just gotta like you know uh, notify all the gay bars in town right uh and, and book the arena and then you're good to go so it it is true it's it is a fabulous event it has a huge following among uh lgbt communities everywhere uh, you know the continent and world over um they were sort of championing trans issues before that issue was even on the the 
uh, radar in in the United States at least, and and you know it's this it's this enormous sort of like uh, super fun super progressive kind of party uh and we watch we watch the live telecast which uh happens in the evening in europe and in the afternoon on um uh in the afternoon here on the east coast of the united states so uh the uh the the, now mark i feel like we're ready for for your uh for your explanation the the favorite coming into the show was israel yes and they took home the top prize um I'd say that this year's Eurovision, the thing that stuck out to me uh, is most notably the lack of geopolitics, huh. the geopolitical drama. Um, a couple of years ago, a Ukrainian singer won with a song that was basically like, Russians are bad, they killed everyone. Oh, this is about our history, not actually about what's happening now in 2016. Um, and then the, the, the year, uh, other years, like Russia does like a super trolley world peace thing, or other country, like Armenia sends a song that's totally not about the Armenian genocide, but is absolutely about the Armenian genocide. Genocide. Uh, there was a notable lack of political subtext in songs this year. Um, and also with uh, the popular vote going to Israel, that's an indicator that whatever geopolitical uh, sort of antipathy against Israel was not on play uh, for this competition. The people just like love the song, love the performance and gave her the votes. You know, the people really they put music first. Is what it comes down to, Mark. They put their love of music uh, first. Anyway, but, I mean, it's not geopolitics, but the song that won, uh, which is a song called Toy by a singer named Netta. Uh, I forget her last name, but she um, she performs under the name Netta. Uh, uh, Netta Brizeli. Netta... Uh, all right um and the uh and she performs a song called toy and the cor- the chorus of the song is i'm not your toy you stupid boy <laughs> and it's a it's a song that is sort of allied has kind of become come to be allied in the discourse around it with the me too movement uh and you know is being seen as uh as a sign of um, uh, you know, being uh, seen as this uh, sort of triumph of uh, feminism and triumph a triumph of uh, you know uh, female agency, and she's also a, just a she's an interesting sort of cool looking performer. Um, she's wearing uh, in in things she has her hair up in Princess Leia buns and is wearing some kind of like brightly colored kimono and you know brightly colored makeup. Uh, Holding yet yeah, in on her Twitter page, she's holding the um, the Euro, the the great crystal microphone um, aloft. Anyway, uh, it, it was a it's a great I don't know it was a it was a great time. There were there were a lot of good songs and like a little bit. The I think we'll do a video with our reactions uh, to it. Pete, we were sorry not to not to have you uh, this year, but we felt your we felt your vibes from far away. Uh, thank you. I, I really do appreciate it. It's uh, I know I could I could, was really excited to be able to go last year, not able to get there this year. But it's a great party. And Eurovision is a really great event. And I'm glad that more people are finding out about it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it, pretty soon. America will get involved and ruin the whole thing. This year, did you have any reactions to the Israeli entry or anything else? I mean, I like the Israeli entry a lot. What surprised me most about the winning entry to Eurovision was that it felt like a contemporary song. And while you describe Eurovision as progressive, I think that that is something of a misnomer because at least historically, the music trends on display at Eurovision are about 
10 to 15 years behind the music trends in the United States, I would say. Like, through the aughts, there was a lot of in-sync clones. And, uh, and, and, and yes, there was the move to EDM at some point, but it always kind of felt like the style was a little bit off or old uh, in watching Eurovision back in the aughts and, and the, in the early teens. But this song, Netta's song, feels totally current. I mean, it's basically like better Megan Trainer. Uh, like much better against Peter. Um, but <laughs> I think that correction is mostly correct, Pete. Uh, that assertion is mostly correct, Pete. But uh, my sense this year was that every every other song was a trap song. Okay, okay, okay. So they are about ten years beat. behind. That is, uh, is that though? I don't know. But I'm no, just ten years behind. Back. I just recently realized, like every song uh, on the radio, on the top forty radio, is a trap song, um, right, and that that was really prevalent in Eurovision. That was at least my take. There was one deliberate '90s. The new Jack Swing throwback. I think that was a Czech Republic. Mm. Um, but the the trap beat was very prevalent. I mean, of course, like the EDM, uh, you know, drop the bass, four on the floor dance thing is still very prevalent. So that might be feeling a little bit dated at this point. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think there there is a kind of greater tolerance for for uh, EDM in the you know in the European music market i should i shouldn't say tolerance like it's a, it's a pathogen <laughs> or something like that oh man it's like uh you know it's like don't drink the water in europe you'll get the edm you know um <laughs> that uh that i think it's it's more current but like uh last year's winner salvador sobral from from portugal won with this sort of jazz ballad right yeah um or yeah, and this this year there was a lot of uh, a lot of sort of '90s style soft rock ballads in the sort of in the what in the Wilson Phillips mode maybe or the almost like the adult contemporary um, adult album alternative. I remember that being a format when when <laughs> I was growing up, um, and not not adult in the oh never mind. You mean the, the Phil Collins cinematic universe? <laughs> 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 yeah, the PCCU, as yes. you, uh, as we say. But um, yeah, uh, the there was al- there were also um, there was also a great song from Denmark where uh, a Tormund Giantsbane, husband of bears, lookalike, uh, with the the shock of the long red hair and the the giant red beard, sa- sang a song about sang a kind of a well, almost like a Phantom of the Opera ish, very theatrical kind of meatloafy. Uh, you know a sea shanty almost uh, yeah it's it's almost it's it's difficult to say but uh about uh rejecting rejecting utterly rejecting uh the cultural heritage and violent legacy of the vikings and uh you know it's very it's very important that we all stand up and uh i don't know start a hashtag anti-viking hashtag campaign or something because they're uh they're an important political issue these days we we all must disavow the viking heritage of violence (laughs) yeah exactly uh pete freeze the arrow in the air (laughs) (laughs) pete Pete, do you disavow the, the violent viking movement I think that history should disavow that the Vikings were violent. Well, it's not that the Vikings weren't violent. It's that everybody was violent. Were the Vikings really that much more violent than everybody else? I think At they, least- I mean, to, to a certain extent, the Vikings won, right? Like, uh, I don't know, the Goths, I mean, not Vikings specifically, but like Northern, Northern Europe did kind of, uh, what, deal a, deal a huge blow to, to Southern Europe. And then we got the Middle Ages, right? 
I mean, that's maybe the biggest oversimplification I've heard recently. <laughs> so 100 percent. You're like a, you're associating like the Goths, the Huns, like like you're associating like the Germanic Roman legions with the Vikings that came a thousand years later. Maybe not a thousand years later, 500 years later. Like we're just going to skip over like the Mongols. We're going to just sort of gloss it all together into one posse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Matt. I think that civilization had problems with the Dothraki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man, these these people, they're coming from the outside and they're hurting the inside. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much what I'm saying, Pete. You know, like, uh, so you want to buy a T-shirt for the movement? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm not saying I'm a big Gustavus Adolphus fan. <laughs> not that he's a Viking, but uh, but more the, the political expansion of Scandinavia into the continental northern Europe in the 17th century is an interesting coda to the advance and retreat of the Vikings. If nothing else, I, I tend to think of the Vikings as a reminder. It's sort of like you ever play StarCraft, right? Like you ever do you ever play any sort of RTS like StarCraft or, Re, or Red Alert? Sure, yeah, Command and Conquer, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you know how there's always this sort of give and take when you're playing that game between building units that you use for like attack and defense and like building economy so that you can build the units and buildings and upgrades later. Like, uh, you know, you, you, you want to build your little Zerg monsters, but you have to build hatcheries and, and queens to, like, grow the little Zerg monsters. Right. Uh, you're familiar with These this phenomenon. Yeah. Exactly. And so, like, there's kind of a trade-off when you're playing the game between playing for economy and playing for military, wherein if you play for military too much, you don't end up with economy. And if you play for uh, economy too much, you don't end up with military. And there's a lot of games that you play well but lose if you build economy too much and then somebody comes in and, and attacks you too quickly. Uh, the Vikings are, are a reminder that you should at least do one of those two things. You should at least you should at least be organizing some sort of defense, even when you're not fighting, or you should be working in some manner to improve your economy in some way. Because in real life, if you do neither of these things, eventually someone will come in and take your stuff. And there's no way you're going to win Eurovision in that situation. No. <laughs> I mean, that's a kind of crude oversimplification, but it's sort of like I tend to see the phenomenon of the Vikings as a demonstration of the failure of the polities that could not defend themselves from the Vikings as much as like the undue aggression of the wow, Vikings. Wow, Pete, that's some real blame the victim t- style thinking there. here is like the king of the Franks. I think he's in a situation <laughs> of privilege. He's in a relative condition of privilege that he perhaps should have had a better plan for this sort of eventuality. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, if, if we really want to find an example of a country that has defended itself uh, from its uh, enemies that surround it and also has built up its economy, well, I could think of few better examples than Israel. The winner of the <laughs> Eurovision, Eurovision Song Contest 2018. And, and the host of Eurovision in 2019. So next year in Jerusalem. No, Matt, they absolutely want – Jerusalem would riot. They're going to do it in Tel Aviv, <laughs> right. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, but I don't know. That, that – uh, uh, that's going to be that's going to be one heck of a party. Not just because it's a city sort of renowned for its nightlife, but uh, yeah, what a what a what an interesting and kind of fun thing. But but you can you can bet that we'll be covering it on overthinking it. So hey, if you if you don't look look try just try something new, right? We don't have to just rehash the same pop culture over and over and over. We don't have to make endless reboots of things in in different formats and channels we don't have to watch the same tired sitcoms for 11 years you know we can you can go watch something new you can learn something new about an, an area of culture of music a video of of uh of any sort of part of culture that that you have 
haven't seen before that you don't you don't know. So head over to YouTube, search for Overthinking It there, and when you see our our uh, happy little mascot Otis, uh, click subscribe. Click subscribe on that YouTube channel and uh, watch some watch some Eurovision videos. Let's uh, let's bridge the gap. Let's bring these two audiences together. The um, the uh, Eurovision watching audience that follows us in the in the the tens and hundreds of thousands on YouTube, and the podcast audience that follows us in the literally dozens uh, here on the Overthinking It podcast. That, that all sounds fine and good, but Matt, what if I don't want to see something new? What if I just want to continue the story of a beloved movie from thirty four years ago? Well, let me ask you a question, Mark. Is there pain in this dojo? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yes, Matt, there is. No <laughs> is there fear in this dojo? Yes. No sensei. All right. I've been meaning for a while to update you on the state of municipal works <laughs> and uh, the progressive gentrification of several neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And luckily for all of us, uh, the, uh, the good people at YouTube Red have decided to reboot... Cobra Kai. He'll reboot the Karate Kid as Cobra Kai. Uh, Pete, I, I gather you've watched some of this now? Yes, yes. So, to be clear, it's not really a reboot, oh, unless good, we're talking about... Good point. Any sort of thing. What's up? Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, it's a sequel. It's a continuation. And I've watched the pilot. I've watched the first episode, and I'm going to be watching the rest of it. But it, I, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because of the chain of considerations and events that watching the first episode of Cobra Kai might set off in you that it definitely set off in me, uh, which was first and foremost to go back and watch the original Karate Kid again, because as you might not believe, the continuation of the Karate Kid, rather than being along the model of the Jaden Smith movie, where you're taking the idea, the motif, the trope associated with the Karate Kid, and you're applying it in a different situation with different people, which is sort of what the Karate Kid sequels do anyway, which is take the same story and kind of repeat it over and over again, uh, is this actually follows the story and develops the story further, which I never thought I would see from the Karate Kid, really. Uh, But it is, for those who are curious, first of all, it's great. Uh, The new Cobra Kai show, I really enjoy it. But the first episode is a very detailed look at the life of Johnny Lawrence, the villain of the first Karate Kid movie, as uh, after he has lost the All-Valley Karate Championship to Daniel LaRusso and how it leaves him as a broken alcoholic who has uh, had difficulty keeping work and has a failed marriage and and, uh, and a, a kid he doesn't see and uh, has become a maintenance man in much the same model as Mr. Miyagi is in the first Karate Kid movie. And wow. so it comes full circle to Johnny being in this sort of weird Trumpian Mr. Miyagi mind space where he does maintenance for a, a apartment building that has a lot of uh, like second and third generation Americans in it that he hates <laughs> and, uh, and he doesn't get along with them. Uh, but he also knows karate and they need to be defended. And it's this sort of weird dynamic of shame uh, and and of, of history and of mythological trope being repeated that gets played through in this first episode. It's absolutely great. But before we get into it, 
I want to mention years and years ago, we did an overthinking it episode about the karate kid and it devolved <laughs> or evolved. I should say it evolved. Bite into, your tongue. <laughs> it evolved into a very detailed discussion about the specific geography of the towns and places that are in the movie, the karate kid. And now having been inspired by watching Cobra Kai to go back and rewatch the karate kid, I can now say with confidence that the karate kid is absolutely trading in the kind of discussion of geography that we had all those years ago that there's like a scene where elizabeth shoe hands ralph macchio her address on a piece of paper and he sees it and there's this weighty consideration moment that happens where if you know what's going on you know that the her address has shown him something about her social status and how he is likely to be accepted or not accepted when he goes to visit her family because he's from one part of this area and she's from the other part of this area uh he's from Reseda and she's in the hills and and they're all around what Encino or something. And you talked about all this. We don't have to go all into all of it again. But but actually, okay, we, should. Just, we should. Just to recap, just to recap, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. So so, so guys, uh, go get go get a drink. This is going to take twenty or twenty five minutes. <laughs> no, but it's, it's like the, the geography of Reseda, the karate kid is different now. Okay. Chatsworth. Yep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Van Nuys. Mm-hmm. Right. Studio City. Sherman Oaks. These are places. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do it again, Pete. No, well, well here's what I want to know, right? Here's what I want to know is that in the Karate Kid, there's a couple of places in the valley. And the valley, of course, becomes a big thing in the 80s with valley girls and kind of valley culture, the gallerias and stuff. Uh, and there are very clear cultural signifiers embedded in the names and identities of these towns that has have national significance, if not global significance. <laughs> and I want you to tell me is are these true anymore and which ones have changed like what are the biggest changes in the geography of the karate kid in the oh what seven years eight years since we did the podcast uh-huh. about it no that was an early one that was like 10 years ago Pete. that was 10 years ago yeah that was yeah. A, did you go back and listen to it no no okay I didn't, that's, pro- that's probably wise um yeah. the uh yeah it's well i think that that Los Angeles has had the same um, sort of the same sort of fate that a lot of American cities have had, which is that it has exploded in population, right? And there's been this sort of move out of the country and into uh, into the city, largely because that's where uh, largely because that's where the jobs are, right? I mean, I don't know. Is that a, is that a fair thing to say, Pete? Sure. I mean, it's more complicated. Am I I oversimplifying like the Vikings? What I'm saying (laughs) is that the Viking hordes from, you know, suburban and rural America have descended uh, on the city and are are hurting the people in the city or at least appropriating their culture. I don't know. I guess that's an oversimplification, huh, Pete? Well, I mean, I guess it explains why all the bartenders and baristas have giant beards now. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. Well played. Uh, Well played, sir. So there's been this huge uh, increase in in population. There's been uh, also like the the jobs that that are available in cities are the, you know, are the big money jobs, are the like the one percenter type jobs, jobs in technology and in Los Angeles media. you know, media was, I mean, LA was known for media, but like aerospace was a huge industry in Southern California for a long time. And that is contracting, um, you know, as the kind of the manufacturing base erodes uh, and plants like giant, giant factories, like, you know, airplanes are built in, in enormous hangars the size of 
many, many airplanes, right? Like the size of many, many football fields. Uh, these things are, um, uh, these things are sort of uh, contracting, and it's the it's the knowledge worker type jobs uh, that are getting all the uh, that are getting all the sort of uh, sexy attention and money. So that there's this sort of like uh, relative like influx of um, influx of uh, capital into the cities or you know cash. I guess not quite the same thing. Property values skyrocket. Uh, just like all the other uh, big American cities, also aided by some kind of unique things about property taxes in in California, and uh, so the the long story short, Reseda probably like uh, the average corner in Reseda probably is like a, a a yoga studio, a juice bar, a yoga studio, a uh, a Lululemon, a yoga studio, a yoga studio, and a third wave coffee shop, and and a dojo, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't, and I, I don't know. I haven't been to Reseda specifically in a while. I don't know if that's if that's true. And it, what what Al said in the podcast, what our friend Al, who was our guest on that podcast, said, uh, which is that you sort of get fancier as you go up into the hills, and you get uh, less fancy as you get on, on the flats um, in the valley. Is true uh, in the regular LA basin. There's the added thing of the of the. Um, the ocean, so you get sort of fancier as you get you get towards the uh, towards the ocean, and uh, a little less so as you you get inland. Now, of course, that's a, a huge oversimplification. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, Pete, it's it, it's uh, it really mirrors demographic trends in in America. That's a long way around the barn to answer your question, isn't it? Right. Oh no, yeah, but it's I think important and interesting, both because of real life and because of the Karate Kid, and you can make the decision as to which you care about more. Just uh, kind of one of the strange qualities of pop culture commentary in the late 20 teens um uh it's it's interesting well also because cobra kai trades in this idea that the city is transforming and that the people who used to be uh it's kind of undisputed masters of the town might now find themselves uh over overtaken by the people who at the time of the karate kid were you know incumbent minorities were very small uh, and in sort of in power and influence and even in number relative to how they are today. And I think I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the show and how it explores this because there's certainly is anger. And uh, the idea of, you know, strike first, strike hard, no mercy takes on a lot of uh, additional consideration. I think the and, and actually it's worth looking at this credo. I mean, sorry, and, sorry to yeah, sorry to to interrupt you, Pete, but like that, you know, that was kind of put forward in the film as a like an cartoonishly villainous sort of sentiment. Right. That yeah. like, that's how the bad guys are marked as bad guys by their adherence to this creed. And it was uh, it was really um kind of jarring to see it put forward as a legitimate policy proposal by a president of the United States <laughs> as a doctrine of preemptive war, right? Well, so as as with all things in The Karate Kid, it is more than it seems in that – and having rewatched The Karate Kid, one of the things that makes it really great is that it's a movie that – is about children, right? And then if you're a children, the problems of the children seem to be the big problems. 
uh, and that, you know, oh, no, Johnny is the bully and and uh, Danny is the kid for the new kid. And Danny and and he's, Elizabeth Shue is, is the girlfriend. And they have this sort of love triangle, except that nobody loves Johnny. <laughs> and, uh, and and then there's this idea of like, OK, Danny is kind of learning to live the good way. And Johnny is learning to live the bad way. And all of the adult world is painted in these broad strokes that seem cartoonish. But the, there's this, you know, Pat Morita, of course, we've had this conversation before. We don't need to go into it again. There's sort of two faces of Miyagi. Um, I mean, we can if we want. But this idea that, like, to surface, on the surface, when you first meet him, Mr. Miyagi is a cartoonish caricature. But then as the movie develops, you see that he's not what he appears to be. And there's a childish way in which he's not what he appears to be. And there's also an adult way in which he's not what he appears to be. And, and one of the things he says is he says, what, there's no bad students, only bad teachers. He attributes the pain and the bad behavior and the evil of the world to adults that don't care for children enough. Right. And, and like who don't pass along uh, the right ideas that don't raise them right. And uh, and you could argue that that's kind of the defining problem of our day in America is this sort of crisis of uh, I mean, certainly the Marvel Cinematic Universe would lead us to think that that is the most important thing that is happening is like parents and children. But but the idea that if you really step back, what you're talking about with regards to, to Mr. Miyagi and versus the Cobra Kai is it's a geopolitical lesson that has to do with the interpretation of the events of the mid 20th century, wherein. It's basically like World War II versus Vietnam. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really oh, what keep it is, right? that, Pete. Yeah. Yeah. So like so strike first, strike hard, no mercy. You're saying that it's kind of a sick joke that that ends up being echoed in George W. Bush and the kind of preemptive war doctrines of the neoconservatives. Shocking. But all. like that's not a mistake. Right. Like when you walk into the Cobra Kai uh, atrium into the vestibule, it's more of a vestibule than an atrium. It's not an atrium at all. But when you walk into the foyer of the Cobra Kai, there are, there's a picture of the Cobra Kai sensei who is a U.S. Army karate champion and a special forces guy in a platoon-esque outfit, right, like he's in Vietnam. And the idea that you have to go and find the enemy and kill the enemy is this <laughs> sort of, like, traumatized Vietnam mentality, uh, right? This, uh, and Mark, I can hear you chiming in. No, I, I, just, I just love the fact that, like, uh, uh, that we can mind the karate kid. For this much, right? And it's, it's <laughs> this the, the dirty secret about overthinking it is that we're not actually overthinking it. We are uh, we're applying the appropriate level just, of scrutiny. Yeah, exactly. We're just like ex- <laughs> we're just like explaining what the movie is about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Pete, Pete, sorry, we didn't we didn't mean no, to, no, to 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 break your rhythm there. Keep explaining what the movie is about, please. <laughs> so, the, so the Karate Kid. What the Karate Kid is about on this level, once you are an adult watching it, is that the Karate Kid is about these two teachers who have set up two different models for how their children should think about violence, how their students should think about violence, and one of them them and they both had they've had different experiences with war right and so the leader of the cobra kai has gone to war and has found in war both some sort of great wound but also a great validation that he went to war and it made him who he is or whatever it was that he wasn't whatever it was that he used to be that he isn't anymore was washed away by the war and what's left is the validation of the war and and that is the cobra kai guy who wants everybody to seek the war and then Mr. Miyagi, he went to war and he received a tremendous amount of validation from the war. I believe he even has the Congressional Medal of Honor under his bed. But his family was killed and his family died in a Japanese internment camp. And so he 
he lost everything that he was also from war. But but he also but he rejected war because it took it from him. Right. So there's this idea that you confront violence and violence takes something from you. And how do you react to the fact that violence has taken something from you? Do you take what violence gives you or do you sort of mourn the loss and try to heal from the loss of the thing that has been taken away? Right. Like what do you do? You see, do you look at war and you say, oh, war took this from me. Violence took this from me. That means the war and the violence is better. And so I should I should attach myself to that. Or do you say war and violence took this thing from me? I should hate war and violence and seek to avoid it, right? And, and of course, Mr. Miyagi avoids it through strength, which is kind of an unpopular idea these days, I think. The idea that if you're sufficiently strong, no one will mess with you because uh, the sort of balance between offensive and defensive capabilities in conflict keeps shifting all the time, right? We but the, are going to have the biggest crane kick, the best crane <laughs> kick. We are going to – we're going to win all the tournaments. We're going to go – that's a terrible impression. Our crane, our crane kick is going to be huge. Yeah, such a huge, classy crane kick. <laughs> but, yeah, but Mr. Miyagi is like, violence is a last resort. Don't fight unless you have to. Don't attack someone unless they attack you first. And even then, there's probably a better way to work it out. As Isaac Asimov puts it in the Foundation series, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Right? Like, whereas, uh, whereas for the Cobra Kai, it's strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Right? Like, force is all is the only language that everybody speaks. I don't know. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. It sounds like some nerd talk to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's perhaps an overstatement. But it's a, uh, I, yeah, I mean, this, it's, this is a, a, a sort of really interesting thing. I just want to pause at this point to, like, uh, to just acknowledge what a kind of nuanced and um, not exactly contradictory, but, but uh, sort of shades of gray type of uh, a kind of multivocal, right, portrait of American identity the Karate Kid presents in Mr. Miyagi, right? Like and, and and if you don't know what what intersectionality is, right? Like it's Mr. Miyagi, right? <laughs> right. Is it like it's he? Um, we talk about we talk about uh, this is an idea that comes from from political science, from sociology, I think, and it's something that Ryan and I talk about on on the uh, TFT podcast. But the idea of a of a salient cleavage, right? And like, so the the question is, if you're if you belong to many groups and you meet a person who belongs to many groups, what is the salient cleavage, right? What is the, what is the relevant identity group, uh, that that pertains to your interaction and right like when you talk to to mr miyagi you could talk to him as uh is it important that uh he's a, a japanese american is it important that he is a uh, a widower or someone who who lost his family is it important that he is a war hero is it important that he is a karate master you know is it is it important that he is a maintenance man right he has all these kind of things going on in his in his identity and he uh you know some of them uh, and some of them he is on the the dominant side the the superordinate side of the the opposition on some of them he is on the subordinate side of the of the uh of the opposition and that's like uh and so when when you deal with him you have to deal you kind of have to take all of those things and his his uh his identity is kind of an amalgam of of all of those things not not just one or not just one or the other and not just because we've sort of taken a turn towards comic book characters in our our uh in our you know film entertainment um but also because we seem we we over the last i don't know 15 20 years took a uh took a turn towards um 
white dude anti-heroes in our television <laughs> entertainment, right? Like mm-hmm. yep. we've we've gotten, you know, we've we've sort of gotten away from this this level of of complexity and it's really as you elucidated Pete, it's it's really fascinating and uh uh and it's it seems like no one is cartoonishly villain, villainous and as as a as an American in 2018, I just don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> so, Pete, Pete, let me ask uh, you cuz you yeah. seemed like you you said that Johnny in this new series is taking on some of the aspects of Mr. Miyagi. Yes. So uh, can we contemplate the intersectionality of Johnny at this sure. point? Like, you know, what yeah. is this defining identity piece? Is it a race? Is it a class? Is it or something else? Well, it definitely is race, at least in the first episode. And again, this is all the first episode. This might change later in the show. Uh, it is it is definitely race because he is white and he's living in a neighborhood that he doesn't think of as white. Although if you watch the old Karate Kid, one of the things that's really interesting is there's a scene early on where when Danny moves to Reseda, he meets uh, a, a Latino guy who's his own age and becomes friends with him. And while they're walking, I, I paused it. I paused the movie and I asked my fiance, look at these two guys. One of them by modern standards is white and one of them isn't. Can you tell which one? And it's like entire, they look exactly the same, right? Like uh, Danny LaRusso and like Fernando or whatever his name is look exactly the same. And, and so he's like, hey, look, things change, right? Like ideas of race shift and change over time. Uh, but but it's definitely this idea that at one point I had this great privilege uh, and kind of this sense of dominance and control over my world, and I don't have it anymore. So that's part of it. It is gendered, I believe, because he lives in a very masculine space. I mean, you could say he lives in an extremely toxically masculine space. There's a great. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, juxtapose two s- scenes in the Cobra Kai pilot to give you a sense for Johnny's kind of intersectional relationship with masculine privilege, but also toxic masculine subordination, which are kind of two different power relationships, I would say. And I don't like the idea of toxic because it's kind of a biopower thing, but that's the word that people use. Like, it's not like he's actually sick, right? It's that it's that there's a way in which he has been entrusted with this kind of cultural series, this sort of entangled cultural identity that hurts him and then incites him to hurt the people around him. Um, but but OK, so on one hand, Danny LaRusso in the Cobra Kai pilot has become a successful car dealership guy. Right. He owns a chain of car dealerships and he's a kind of local celebrity and he he like kicks the competition and it's like very corny. <laughs> and if you go to his car dealership, he gives you a bonsai tree. Everybody who comes to the dealership gets a bonsai tree as a gift. Now, as you might recall from the Karate Kid, and this is kind of why it rewards a rewatch. When Danny as his mom moved to Mr. Miyagi's house or Mr. Mr. Miyagi's house, his uh, his his apartment building where he's the uh, maintenance guy, uh, he gives them bonsai trees after they get to know him a little bit. And this makes them feel welcome. It makes them feel like they belong. Mr. Miyagi kind of becomes Dan Danny's like sort of surrogate father figure because his other father is in the picture. Um, And so Danny has taken this lesson of giving Right. Of like you get when you give you achieve kind of like a power and a kind of even really a patriarchal relationship with your community by being a giver and not a taker. Uh, Like, yes, he's capable. He's kicking. But the kicking is kind of goofy and funny in this context. What's really powerful is the fact that he is giving, but he is also becoming wealthy by giving. Right. And and this is a lesson he very much learns from Mr. Miyagi In 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 an analogous scene. Ed Asner is in this show and Ed Asner plays Johnny's stepfather who has who marries his mom, presumably after something happens to Johnny's dad or he leaves. 
And uh, and Johnny has been such an, a screw up that Ed Asner hates him. And Ed Asner also is positioned as just sort of a hateful, arrogant man. He's elderly and in ill health. And he has this black female nurse who follows him around that he just like yells at and barks at and doesn't treat like a human being. Uh, so there's some intersectional reality, right? Like uh, identity. Where Ed, Ed, Asner, Asner, as, yeah. Ed Asner, by the way, an actor like renowned for uh, super lefty political stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so he plays a guy who is the weak one in the power relationship with his nurse, but can't handle being low status. And so lords his identity over her and like yells at her. And she just sort of sits there and takes it because that's their power relationship. And and uh, which is really interesting when you think about it. And he goes to Johnny's apartment. And what he does is he offers to buy Johnny out of his life with a check. He writes a check and he says, I don't ever want to see you again. <laughs> like, I was your dad and I want you gone. And the way that I want you gone is I'm giving you money. And this is after John. what Johnny has done is he's done a Mr. Miyagi. He like he sees because remember, oh, it's just it's just fractal. It's so great. In the first Karate Kid, Johnny and his friends gang up to beat up Danny uh, after the Halloween party. Or there's a bunch of different parties that happen and, and they go to beat up Danny for horning in on his girl, for like putting water on him in the restroom, putting out his joint. There's all sorts of stuff that Danny does to kind of like provoke Johnny's ego. Uh, which some of it is, you know, on purpose and some of it is totally by accident. And some of it is Johnny just being an awful child. But uh, but they go to beat Johnny, uh, beat Danny up. And Danny is like really badly hurt. And one of Johnny's friends like begs him not to keep beating him up because it's just like really going to hurt him. But Johnny's going to do it anyway. And that's when Mr. Miyagi like leaps over the fence and beats up all the kids, which is kind of a weird thing, right, for a respectable character to do. But in the context of the movie makes total sense from the perspective of the kid makes total sense. There's a scene in Cobra Kai, the first episode, where the the Latino guy who's like the kid that has asked Johnny to teach him karate because he saw that he knows karate, right? Like, uh, and he said, no, I don't want to teach you karate. He is at the convenience store and he gets jumped by a bunch of teenagers and Johnny defends him by like kicking the teenagers who are going after him, right? And uh, – and it's like this weird moment where it's like he's clearly reaching out for some sort of positive model for how to live because he's getting he's getting fired. His life is falling apart. Right. And he's like, well, you know, this is something that Mr. Miyagi did, I think, is sort of implied. And it's like, I'm going to be the Mr. Miyagi for this kid. And, and he, he agrees. And the episode ends with him offering to teach this kid karate. But in doing so, he gets arrested. <laughs> And and by getting arrested, his own stepfather comes and says, I'm going to give you money to buy you out of out of my life. And so you have the sort of Danny LaRusso, Mr. Miyagi model of giving, which is like, I'm going to give. And by giving, I will kind of become uh, your kind of responsible person for you. I will be your car dealer guy. I will help you get a car. And then by doing this, I will be enriched and you will get what you want and everybody will be happy. And it will be this sort of like good thing for the community. And then there's Johnny who's trying to do it. But his model for giving is this sort of like selfish, I, this selfish giving, which absolves the giver of any sort of responsibility and is given with contempt for the weakness of the person who does the receiving. And, and, and so like, it's like, I'm going to give to you because you're weak versus I'm going to give to you because you're weak, right? Like I'm going to help you because you need it versus I'm going to like give help you because you can't help yourself and you should feel bad about this and you should get to a situation where you can't help yourself. It sounds like, um, I mean, it sounds like the one, the Ed Astor style is, is not giving 
really at all because it's more transactional, right? It's well, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a trade, yeah, yeah, and that 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 like that's not really in the spirit of giving that uh, you know that Johnny seems to be um, that Johnny seems to be you know trying to embody. Right, right, exactly, and and so that this so the idea that Johnny is going to use this money to rebuild Cobra Kai. He's going to use the legacy of his stepfather who doesn't love him to create an environment where he is a surrogate stepfather for other boys, right? That presumably he does not love. And I'm interested to see where the show is going to go, but it's really cool that they sort of take the Miyagi narrative and they flip it over. And as you're asking, well, how does this intersectionally relate? Well, it relates to Johnny's idea of masculine identity presentation, which is about self-reliance, which is about you you bring people up into masculine identity, masculine identity in order to imbue them with the self-reliance necessary to uh, face the challenges of the world. Uh, and it's supposed to be individualistic. So it's a relationship that's temporary. And this is sort of the traditional model that he's been given to do this. Um and that's like a that's a gender identity, right? And again, people will say that it's bad and it's toxic, uh, sure. But it's the one that he has, and it's the one that he's expressing. So that interacts with his fall from grace, right? He previously was was very well off, had a dirt bike and a nice haircut and everything, and now he's like scraggly in an old t shirt with a beard, and he like can't hold a job, right? And so he's had this sort of uh, decline in his material state. And that also informs it. There's a reason he's at the convenience store. It's because he's spending a couple of dollars in his pocket to get a single slice of pizza for dinner, right? He's identified – someone identifies him as homeless. Uh, another homeless person is basically argues with him about panhandling on the sidewalk. And so there's that aspect of his identity, which is both kind of like how he's seen superficially by other people as signifying poorness, right? So he has the sort of – um he has the ethnicity. He has like the he has the genetic phenotype of privilege, right? He has the or the expressed phenotype of privilege in that he is a white male of a certain age and a certain height, but he expresses material subordination because he looks poor and he lives on the wrong side of town, right? And and he is sort of seen as a bum and there are assumptions that are made about him because of the way that he looks and acts. But at the same time, he also is male, which in his idea of male gives him certain responsibilities he has to carry out and also certain kinds of uh, problems they have to deal with and also certain deficits that he has. And the show, I mean, he's very possible he's going to turn out to be the villain. I mean, it, it, the first episode is very sympathetic to him, but it, the show takes the, uh, uh, the uh, unconventional step of Ralph Macchio talks to you after the episode. Like, as in you watch the episode, and he says, thank Ralph Macho comes on in sort of like Kirk Cameron's special episode of Growing Pain style, talking directly to the camera. And is like, we hope you like the first episode of Cobra Kai. This is Johnny's story. If you want to see Danny's perspective, watch the second episode, which is interesting because it doesn't mean that the whole show is going to be sympathetic towards Johnny right, in this right, same right. way. They want to show you his intersectional perspective and all of the dynamics at play. You know, he's lonely. Right. He's a he's a deadbeat father. Right. Like there's all these. This, he has his karate championship uh, trophy in his closets. So so there's this sort of winner loser dynamic that's going on. But that's that's for him. Other people are going to experience him in other ways. And and Danny is certainly going to experience him in other ways. Danny's daughter is a character in the show. She experiences him in different ways. She hits him with a car and then he scares her. Uh, and so that relationship is going to be interesting. Yeah, but anyway, you mentioned cars a, f- a few times, and I wanted yeah. to actually uh, bring back a little bit the conversation around sort of uh, you know the, the built environment and uh, the urban landscape um, because transportation is a big theme 
in yeah. the first Karate Kid movie. Yep. Right. Because yep. he starts off with the bike and he gets run over, you know, the, 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 the bad kids with dirt bikes uh, harassing him while he's on his bike. And then eventually he gets the car uh, from Mr. Miyagi and kind of self-actualizes in right. that way. And now it's really interesting that he's a car dealer. Now he yep. sells, he pedals in self-actualization in a certain yep. way. Uh, and there's an additional, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, no, I wanna, I'm curious to see how more how that plays out. In particular, like, like, does Johnny have a car? Does he have a crappy car? Does he have to to poke around on a on a crappy little bicycle? Oh, does Johnny have a car? Oh, does Johnny have a car? Tell me about Johnny's car. <laughs> you are, your intuition is spot on, Mark. Johnny drives a sweet '80s Firebird, uh-huh. Candy apple red. That is in terrible shape. (laughs) And so whereas Danny is peddling Audis, right, and and that he's standing next to these like fancy new luxury cars, Johnny is the one who has the classic car. So in the original Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi restores classic cars, classic cars he can't drive because he doesn't have a driver's license. So he restores the cars and cars that are from the time period when he like shortly there when he was happy, like the 40s, right? Like old 40s cars that he restores from the time that he had his wife and he was happy. And maybe from a little bit after in the 50s when he was young. And then there's this dream that that there's a dream deferred in Miyagi's cars, right? Uh, that it's not entirely inappropriately reference Langston Hughes, right? That like uh, what happens to Mr. Miyagi's dream deferred? Well, it sits in his lawn and he polishes it all the time and he makes other people polish it until somebody comes along to live it. It's a different sort of idea. But Johnny like Mr. Miyagi, has a classic car from a time in his life when he felt like things were going his way that he's held on to. But the difference is he hasn't waxed it. He hasn't polished ah, it. Although, of there course, you go. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi, of course, hasn't polished his cars either at the beginning of The Karate Kid, and Daniel has to come along and polish it. So in the main events of the first episode of Cobra Kai, this Trans Am is hit by a giant SUV and destroyed. Uh, right. Oh, not destroyed. Oh. It's it's damaged very badly and has to go dealership for repairs. And the repairs are going to cost more than it is worth. The the dealership ends up being Danny LaRusso's dealership. And this is what brings Johnny and Danny together again is this classic car. So maybe at some point down the line in this season, this car is going to be restored. Maybe somebody's going to have to do wax on wax off on it in order to clean it up. Right. But the idea that Danny is the one who has the car and the car is damaged is a really interesting Echo and inversion of the sort of caretaker and caretaken. I mean, to an extent, in the first Karate Kid, Danny is is taking care of Mr. Miyagi in certain ways, too. Right. He's kind of he's doing all of the things around the house that you would expect a parent to do, not a child. And there, but even though Mr. Miyagi is making him do it in order to learn, Mr. Miyagi is also kind of benefiting from the relationship. So I'm looking for who is it going to be, or is it going to be anybody? Like, what's going to happen to Johnny's car? Cheap labor, you mean? Cheap fence painting labor? <laughs> Look, man, I'm not. You didn't come here to be your slave. I'll paint your house. I'll paint your fence. Right? Like, come on. He's like, wax on, wax off. Paint house, up down. You know, paint house, side side. Paint fence, up down. Right? Like, there's that wonderful moment where Danny Danny gets really angry that he's been doing slave labor for Mr. Miyagi, and then Mr. Miyagi like attacks him, and he knows all the moves to defend himself. <laughs> so yeah. the, the 2018 equivalent of the menial tasks that Danny had to do are going to be like updating uh, someone's social media feed. I think right, exactly. <laughs> post Instagram, post Facebook, post Instagram, post Facebook. Up down. 
<laughs> Retweet um, side side. <laughs> let's uh, let's close maybe on the idea of good and bad good and bad teachers because it seems you know when when you talk about yeah and I, I agree with you Pete about about the the idea that like uh, toxic is maybe not a word that moves the discourse forward right um, I think but, it just misidentifies the nature of the problem as biological when it, I don't think it's a biological problem there's an accuracy problem with the word toxic and I think there's like a political discursive problem with the word uh, with with the word toxic but but there are a lot of there are a lot of ways in which woke discourse does not maybe live up to its own principles uh but it's it's you know kind of bad manners to point them out because you know continuous improvement right like we can make our own suggestions and if people don't like them they don't have to like them it's no. fine you other know? other people can make suggestions that may be better um <laughs> is, is there is there a multitude of viewpoints in this dojo <laughs> no, sen- no sensei is there an open discussion of different perspectives in this dojo no, no sensei, sensei. <laughs> <laughs> tweet first, tweet hard, no mercy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh God, you know what? We're not going to top that. <laughs> but but let's try. I think in this age of kind of Trumpian, and by the way, we have to uh, we have to come up with a word that's like Godwinning. But that yeah. <laughs> that involves comparisons to uh, the 45th president in the United States um, in in this day and age of of, you know, this what do we call it? Uh, working class white people. Right. Like uh, poor white male disenfranchisement by poor. I don't mean pitiable. I mean, uh, economically disadvantaged. Um, right. When this becomes like a, a major political force, something something that has to be reckoned with. Right. Uh, are are. And and these things come, you know, uh, these things come out in these these really destructive cultural ways. Um, are those people bad students, or were they were they taught badly? You know, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question. And that that the idea, you know, the idea of it's funny, the idea of the melodramatic flashback, you know, is that sort of all is forgiven or at least all is explained and if all is explained then all is forgiven right that uh if you kind of know what johnny went through you know maybe some of the some of the more um destructive or less uh you know i don't know less um socially responsible things that he does might might be explained by that right you might you might be able to have have like compassion you might be able to uh sort of walk in his shoes a little bit um and that's uh that's not really you know that's 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 an idea that we have but i think that there's this ambivalence in the culture about like at what point that kind of toleration ends and uh you know an an idea of kind of personal an idea of kind of responsibility for one's own thoughts and actions uh, th- thoughts and actions begin, and I don't. I don't suggest that there's a. Uh, I don't suggest that there's a bright line, right? Yeah. That, you know, and in in Catholicism they talk about like the age of reason, right? And it's seven or something like that because a, a child's brain develops to the point where the child is capable of understanding sin, um, and that like uh, you know if you sin before you're seven, you probably really didn't know what you're doing. You couldn't form the. You didn't have the mental capacity to like really form intent to uh go against god's will so you're you're not actually sinning but after that you're going to hell and and that like that's that's probably too simplistic you know that's probably like uh uh some idiot who would say that vikings and goths are the same right that's probably like (laughs) what what some some uh real butt wipe like that would say but uh you know it is it is a question that i think we have to 
uh, have to cope with because I think we're we're looking at a world in which there are uh, there are bad students and bad teachers, yeah. you know, <laughs> and and there are some there are some intentionally bad teachers, right, who are who are teaching badly for sort of self interested reasons, yeah. and there are some just bad teachers who were themselves bad students or badly taught themselves and and uh, and didn't didn't know better, and yeah. and yet the idea that knowing better would solve a lot of our problems uh that is incorrect right like you know knowing better wouldn't wouldn't solve a lot of our problems it would just make us all you know i don't know more more righteous tweeters or or something like that and it's interesting to see because from your description it seems like the the show is engaging with these uh with these ideas and and um that might actually make me want to shell out 10 bucks for youtube red also you don't have to watch commercials anymore (laughs) the first two episodes are free the rest will cost you yeah i'm curious to see will they break the cycle of leg sweeping violence. I mean, maybe John. Let's be clear. Johnny's a bad guy. Johnny does even in the first movie. Johnny does a lot of things that are over the line, and he, the first movie gives you an opportunity to sympathize with him by looking at his teacher. But at, yeah, at some point, he's got to take some sort of responsibility for what he's become, and he can't just pawn off his problems on everybody. And one thing you can say a lot of good things about Mr. Miyagi, but there's one thing that Mr. Miyagi is not a fan of. And that is change, right? The idea that the teacher and the student reaffirm the way that you're supposed to live. And if the teacher is good and the student is good, the teacher is good, the student will be good. And then if the student is good, the student will become a good teacher is a very conservative way of looking at things. And one of the big issues is like, okay, you've been taught as a child to live a certain way, to grow up to be a certain kind of person. Now the world is not the world that you thought it was going to be. And so the things that you were taught are not really relevant anymore more um it did was your teacher bad because they couldn't see the future so you're what, saying was, you're yeah. saying that cobra kai is a critique of the enlightenment <laughs> i'm just saying that like mr miyagi's garden his like zen garden in the back of his house is not a progressive space right it is it is a transformative space for individuals but it is not a culturally progressive and forward-looking place and to assume that all of our identity political problems would be solved it is it is worth noting that that there is only a man who lives there he doesn't have to deal with anybody else and in karate kid part two we start seeing some of the structural identity problems that arise when these kinds of people have to conflict with each other and have other sorts of intersectional relationships like what happens to women in okinawa and how what happens like what sort of agency do they have, right, in this world where good te- like fathers teach sons and the way of the open fist is, you know, the way to live a right life? Uh, you know, what happens to people who aren't the people punching each other and why are they punching each other and, you know, Sato and all that stuff. So, so yeah, so on one hand, we want to praise Miyagi, but on the other hand, you know, it's it's not necessarily the best preparation for the transformation of your entire culture to imitate the Okinawans, Right. Uh, at least the 80s Okinawans as barely understood <laughs> by non-cosmopolitan Americans. Hmm. So, well, uh, so there's that. I'll be excited to see how this uh, I'll be excited to see how this plays out over the over the course of, of 10 episodes. Thanks very much for um, for talking about it with us, Pete. And Mark, thank you very much for hosting me uh, here in your magnificent abode. My pleasure. Next year in Jerusalem. Well, <laughs> Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. Yeah, prob- probably. Um, so, uh, guys, this was so much fun to be here with Mark. How about next week uh, we all come over to my house for brunch? 
That sounds lovely, Matt. Ooh, that yeah. sounds fun. I'm saying Definitely. let's let's Excellent. let's commit now and never ever break the elaborate fictive premise that we are all at my house for lunch in the next episode. Yeah? Or do we yes. all agree? Yeah. Sounds okay. Good so in the next episode, we are at my house for lunch. Brunch. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. So does Daniel-san take the 101 or the Pasadena Freeway or other various roads to get to different parts of the greater Los Angeles area? You know, the Pasadena Freeway is very interesting because it's an interstate at one point. Then uh-huh. it passes uh, it passes uh, downtown Los Angeles and it becomes a California route. So Interstate 110 becomes mm-hmm. Route 110. Wait, wait, wait. The, the Pasadena Freeway is a real thing because I just pulled it out of my ass. Yeah, the Pasadena Freeway. Oh, okay, Freeway. great. The, <laughs> do you know what the Pasadena Freeway is? The Pasadena Freeway is what Judge Doom was building in, in Roger Rabbit. Eight lanes of shimmering cement. <laughs> Running from here to Pasadena. Why do you think I bought the red car? To dismantle it. There, here's the other thing to, uh, that we're doing in Los Angeles these days. Um, uh, we're, we're finally, a hundred years later, we're finally building some uh, light rail. You know, we're finally <laughs> rebuilding public transit in, this, in my city. Hey, Daniel-san. What are you doing here? Well, I got on the one down to the PCH, and I got down through to La Brea, and then I was coming down. You know what? You think that that, like, you think that that's funny until you realize that those conversations are the difference between a 45-minute drive and a four-hour drive, and then it's not so goddamn funny anymore. <laughs>